James Lauren with the Messiah Community Radio Talk Show. Well, if you're like me, you are not really always certain that you are being the best Christian that you could be. In other words, do we all follow the Great Commission? Do we go out and share Jesus and uh, feed those that are hungry and see those that are in prison? Well, tonight you're going to meet Paul Borthwick, and he's the author of Great Commission, Great Compassion. Uh, we follow Jesus into all the world, and we follow his example in all we do. And to help us learn how to be more compassionate Christians, let's welcome Paul. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Michael. Paul, it's our pleasure to have you on. Can you help us understand how to be more compassionate Christians? Because it seems that it has become more of a a static sport. I mean, it used to be a team sport in biblical times where people could go out together and share the gospel and so forth. Now, not so much. You shake a hand, you have a cookie and uh, maybe some coffee, and you go home. Um, How did that all happen? Well, uh, one, one man said, I think, I don't know if I quoted it in the book, but he says, we have moved from being fishers of men to being keepers of the aquarium. And uh, in other words, we, we tend to stay with those that are already in the community and not go out. And I, I can give you a few reasons why. I mean, I live in the Boston area, and the increased secularization of our culture makes it increasingly uncomfortable for Christians. We're not just going out and making you know nominal Christians deep. We're going out to people whose uh, lifestyles, whose values, whose behaviors are so contrary to what we believe as Christians that sometimes we just want to run the other way. One of my uh, former students, when she got her first job in Boston, she was talking about using the public transportation. And she said that uh, it really bothered her because there were so many mentally ill people on the streets. And she would encounter them even on the public transportation. And I said, so what did you do? She goes, I started to drive. In other words, she didn't want to be exposed to it, so she decided she would drive and park in the private garage of the company she was working for. And sometimes I think it's the toughness of the world. Sometimes it's because of the spirit of pluralism, uh, sort of Western spirit of everybody can have their own beliefs, but nobody has a right to say theirs is the, the right way, or in our case, the only way. And, and because of the, I don't know what to say. You know, it used to be, when I was growing up, I mean, uh, when I was a teenager, people from other world religions were exotically other people who lived across an ocean. And now, you know, my neighbor is a Hindu, my pharmacist is a Sikh, you know, my doctor is a Muslim, and mm-hmm. a lot of times Christians, we just don't even know how to start the conversation. Yes, and part and parcel of that is the fact that many Christians don't want to leave their comfort zones. And and as a matter of fact, either do pastors because it's hard to get out of the four walls of the church and start uh, being missions-minded in the community and sharing the gospel. Where you mentioned six reasons not to leave your comfort zone. Okay, number one, it will explode our view of God. Number two, it will change the way we view our possessions. Three, it will confront our perspective on hardship. Four, it will challenge our cultural ethnocentricity. Five, it will force us to think about heaven. Good point. And it will stretch our faith. So how did all that happen where we went from uh, sharing the gospel so diligently to just being frady cats? Um, uh, there's all sorts of things. I think, you know, it's interesting from if you go back into the 70s and 80s when the Christians were identified with the moral majority there were some great things that happened because of that, but what happened was it gave Christians 
a desire, a comfortableness in being in power. And if you look at the history of the church, the Christian cause has almost always done better when the Christians were being opposed or persecuted than when they're in power. You know, when, mm. when, we're, when we're being fed to the lions, we do okay. When we're looking up in the grandstand and sitting and watching others, we don't do so well. And uh, that combined with, and now, you know, thinking about the, even the current uh, national realities, when everybody on TV or everybody in politics is saying, well, I'm a Christian or I'm an evangelical, sometimes it's hard to self-identify because, you know, I find myself saying, when people will say to me, you know, I'm a Christian pastor, they said, are you like this guy or is he on your team? And uh, I'd, sometimes one of the hardest things about being a Christian is, frankly, who else is on your team? You know, because uh, yes. I'm not ready to say somebody who says they're a Christian isn't, but I'm not proud of everybody who says they're Christians. I'm not proud of their behavior. Okay, I can relate to that, and I think a lot of Christians can too. So, in your book, Great Commission, Great Compassion, there are a lot of directives on how to really evangelize, how to, how to be a missions-oriented person where you are, whether that's at work or outside the community. And I was really convicted to the heart that I wasn't doing a lot of the things that you mentioned. I was wondering if people ever get mad at you for writing this book because it sheds some light, you know, where we can be a little kind of lazy, I think, in getting busy for Jesus. We can even be a little guilty, I think, or at least I felt some guilt in reading the book. Um, well... They're not very vocal about it if they are, but sometimes they will say along the lines of how you introduced it, they say, well, thanks for the book. It made me feel real guilty. But the goal is not to feel guilty. The goal is just to help us move a step forward on the, on the, uh, the, the process of following Jesus. Because when you're an author and you write these things, you know, you're, you're basically saying, now you could do this or you could do that. If somebody reads it as, I got to do all those things, then it really gets overwhelming. But if because of the book, someone learns a homeless guy's name, you know, somebody, let's say they work in downtown Chicago or they work in downtown Boston, and they go by a homeless person every day on the subway or in, in the streets of the city, if because of this book, they take the time and learn the guy's name, then the book's worth it. Because we're trying to get to the point of realizing that, to quote from another guy named Bob Jacks, we are 24-7 on call as witnesses. Okay, so it makes sense. But here's the $10,000 question or $10 million question. Why don't we do it? Well, I think because we get overwhelmed. Don't be so overwhelmed by the needs of the world that you just sit on your hands and go back into your house and watch reruns. You know, it's so easy to get overwhelmed. So when John the Apostle writes, if you have the world's goods and you see your brother in need and you close your heart... How can God's love abide in you? Well, that would be John referring to the beggar that he saw on the way to, to temple. And uh, one of the themes in the book is uh, trying to combat apathy. And I explain in the book that apathy doesn't mean you don't care. It just means you don't feel. Like I even talking about homeless people on the streets of the city. The very first day you see that person, you know, lying in their own vomit or in some sort of you know, degrading situation, it might just absolutely flip your stomach. The, t the seventh day you see that, you notice it, but you walk, you cross the street. The 50th day you see it, you might not see it anymore. And that's the hard thing, is to maintain what um, Gary uh, Haugen calls compassion permanence. You know, consciously asking God for the grace to see what's in front of us. So I can't help a billion starving children but I can adopt a child through Compassion Project. 
you know, I can't visit every prisoner, but I can remember, you know, I, I just got a newsletter from a, a ministry called Elam, E-L-A-M, and they basically support the church in Iran, Iran. And so they give you the names of Christians who are imprisoned. And I'll never meet these people, but I can pray for them. You know, so it's, it's, that's why I think at the end of the book, I give uh, various suggestions on what you can do. And some of them are just short bullet points, you know. Go to a nursing home and visit someone who never gets visitors. I mean, it's not something where we're all going to just suddenly become, you know, the head of Compassion Project or World Vision. But, we, you know, it's basically just living a life of witness, living a life of compassion. Paul, you mentioned sometimes that we get overwhelmed with our own needs or preoccupied with them. And so that also kind of plays into effect a little bit that uh, we have to watch it, that we're so concerned with us and not about what's happening with other people. We all get overwhelmed by it. And sometimes our own needs preoccupy us. But I think the challenge of the Christian life is to get past our own needs. When Jesus says, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing, he's actually talking to the high priest who's right in front of him. You know, so it's not just, it's not about ignoring our own needs, it's about trying to get past our needs to care for someone else in need. One of my favorite verses in 2 Corinthians 1.4, God comforts us in our afflictions so that we can comfort others with the same comfort we've received from God. In other words, when I get, you know, if I get cancer, the first thing I pray, Lord, take it away, heal me. But if he doesn't heal me the way I want to be healed, then I say, use it so that I can care for someone else. And even if it all it means is I sit next to them and cry with them. But bottom line is, you're reading a book that's a product, you know, someone asked me how long it took me to write the book. I said 62 years, you know, because it's not a matter of something I just sat down and said, you know, let's just go do this. It's, it's lessons of a lifetime that I'm still learning. I still struggle to keep a soft heart. And I think that's the first thing. Every day, to start the day and just say, Lord, help me to see the people you're putting in front of me. Yes, amen. Nowadays, it seems there's some um, misinterpretation or people aren't really sure. Is missions actually going into the community and evangelizing, or is missions going to a faraway country outside of the United States and evangelizing, sharing the gospel? So which one is that? Well, I think it's not. The, the, the problem is people make it an either-or proposition. It's like, you know, nowadays you'll hear churches say they're missional, and what that means is they want to reach their own community. And I say, hallelujah, amen to that. But it's not a matter, you, we don't stop in Jerusalem, to use Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You know, Jesus wants us to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. So two towns away from me is a town that has 14,000 Moroccan Muslims. They are geographically close, but culturally distant. The only way I'm going to have any impact on them is if I get involved in something, reaching out to them in that community or serving them, you know, English as a second language class or something like that. But it's not everything. It's just that, you know, if nothing else, all of us can have prayer impact, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. There are other things, too. I mean, being on the lookout for the people around us. I'll tell you a quick Boston story along those lines. You know, I do a lot of international traveling, but Boston is where I live. It's where I've always lived. And uh, you may remember in April of 2013, our whole city and the nation was actually rocked 
by the Boston Marathon bombing. And two weeks later, I was at Boston's Logan Airport, and I noticed that there was this young woman minding one of those little kiosks, one of those little stores, and uh, she was standing there. She had a hijab on, you know, the head covering of a Muslim lady, and she was all by herself. People would come by, newspapers, but nobody acknowledged her. Nobody looked at her in the eye. And I walked over to her. I just saw her, and I said... I, saw, I walked over to her and I said the only, one of the only phrases I know in Arabic. I said, Salam Alaikum, which is an Arabic greeting, which means, you know, peace be upon you. And she started to cry. She said, since the Boston Marathon, I've been standing here for two weeks. You're the first person who spoke to me. And I say to myself, this lady didn't get to hear the gospel back in whatever country she came from. God brought her to Boston so she'd hear it from somebody like me. And, you know, that's why I get excited about the fact that, contrary to all the different discussion, the people that God bring in, brings into our country, are, he's bringing them here so that they'll hear the gospel. It's not, you know, the lines between Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth are really, really getting blurrier and blurrier. Because, like I said, the world is coming to us. Okay, next question that I have for you. Now, you're a church consultant, and you help a lot of churches get a lot more hot when it comes to being missionally minded in the community. And we're very grateful for the people who listen to our program, not only uh, fellow Christians, but people in ministry, pastors. And so for those that are listening, what kind of ideas or methodologies that are in your book, what can you tell them so that more churches become missionally minded? And it's one of the hardest things in the world to think outside of those four walls. What would you tell them? Well, I can, I'll, I'll just rattle off some suggestions. Again, any one of these might be a step in the right direction. In uh, one church, not too far from our community, the pastor requires his deacons or his elders, I forget what their leadership team is called, he requires them all to belong to some local club outside the church. So in other words, you can't be spending all your time with Christians. If you're going to be an elder at the church, we want you to be in the bowling league. We want you to be involved in the PTA. We want you to be involved in town government because he wants people to be salt and light. That's one thing. I think every church nowadays should have at least some time during the year, maybe a three, four-week session, where they teach a course on speaking to your friend from another world religion. It's amazing to me how many churches I've visited since... September 2001, who have not ever had a class on understanding Islam. And so as a result, we have opinions, but we don't have relationships, and we don't even have any way to get started. That's another one. I think making sure your church doesn't have so many programs, and there's no chance for outreach. There's no chance for friendship. And, um, and along those lines, though, using the, the, the greatest felt needs of the community as an opportunity for outreach so, you know, some sort of mom-to-mom group or uh, mops, some others are preschoolers, things that people have a perceived need of. One church that I know of has an English as a second language class, and they're very involved in, in helping refugees uh, get started in the U.S. culture. You know, so basically look, survey the community, see what the needs are, and see if you can make an impact. Because I think the starting point is next door for most of us. Some will want to do international, and then you have all the opportunities of short-term mission trips. And that's the, the phrase, you know, about exploding your view of God and helping you see the church that's suffering in other parts of the world. But I think there's a lot of great things you can do just to basically help people think beyond the boundaries of church. My wife, who has been worked all of her career 
at a Boston area hospital. When I was on staff at the church, she used to say to me, Paul, you don't understand what it's like to work with people who never think about God. You know, and as a result, I think it's important to have classes for Christians on how to start the conversation, how to be a Christian at your workplace, you know, how to uh, incite conversation without necessarily being some sort of obnoxious person preaching at people, but actually building friendships. There is a section that you have in the book that talks about being a fragrance. And I really love that because it was very graphic and visceral, where Christians really are here to be a fragrance, a sweet-smelling fragrance to others, uh, to the world. Can you explain a little bit more about that? Second Corinthians 2, where Paul the Apostle says, we are the fragrance of Christ. And sometimes, you know, anonymously shoveling the snow of my neighbor is just leaving the fragrance. You know, being involved with something where you help someone, maybe you pick up someone and you drive them to where they need to go without necessarily any kind of hardcore preach. My consolation is that Jesus calls us witnesses. And, you know, the primary function of a witness is to serve the purpose of the one who's building the case. And I love to remember the fact that God is building the case in people's lives. And there are times when I might get to share the whole message of Jesus Christ, and maybe, you know, by the providence of God, that person's ready to make a decision. And by the end of the flight, or by the end of the bus trip, or by the end of the conversation at the coffee shop, that person's praying to receive Jesus. That Mm -hmm. has not been my experience often, but it happens. More often than not, we run into people, and God's building His case in their lives. And we're witnesses. And He's calling us in. So that lady that I greeted, Salam Alaikum, I didn't get a chance to share much more than that other than I'm a Christian and I prayed for her, right? But that might be the fragrance, that might be the salt, the light, whatever it is, that becomes one step in the case that God's building in her life. And that gives me a lot of consolation that I don't have to be, you know, this perfect evangelist preacher who gets the whole message out every time and calls people to a decision. Because sometimes we're just basically one step along in the long journey that they're beginning on. Paul Borthwick, thank you for being on the program. Wow, you've really made us think a little bit about our lives here as Christians and really what God commands. Great Commission, Great Compassion is the name of the book, Following Jesus and Loving the World. We have to learn to get outside of our comfort zones a little bit and follow the examples that are in this book. So go and do. Jesus commands it. The world needs it. And word and deed go together One without the other is not enough. Just reading the back of your book here. So thank you so much for being on the program. And I just want to ask you also, I'm sure listeners would like to know where they can buy your book. Um, You can go to ivpress.com. That's the uh, publisher, InterVarsity Press. Uh, Christianbook.com has it. And uh, Amazon has it. And if you just, you know, if you Google my name, uh, Paul Borthwick, B-O-R-T-H-W-I-C-K, or the title of the book, Great Commission, Great Compassion, either one should get you to some resource where you can get it and you can compare who's selling it, selling it at the biggest discount. Well, it certainly is an important subject, and I pray our audience takes these words to heart, and may we share the gospel unto the ends of the earth. Thank you, Paul Borthwick. Have a great evening, and thanks for being on the program. Okay, thank you, Michael. Enjoyed it.